When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. After the disastrous retreat to Coruña, the rifles were reduced to a sickly skeleton, if I may so term it. Out of perhaps 900 of as active and fine fellows as ever held a weapon in the field of an enemy's country, we paraded some 300 weak and crestfallen invalids. I myself stood the third man in my own company, which was reduced from near a 100 men to but three. Indeed, I think we had scarce a company on parade stronger than 10 or 12 men at the first parade. After a few parades, however, our companies gradually were augmented by those of the sick who recovered, but many of those did not sink in hospital were never more of much service as soldiers. The captain of my company was sick, and Lieutenant Hill commanded the three men who answered for number four on this occasion. I remember he smiled when he looked at me. Harris, he said, you look the best man here this morning. You seem to have got over this business well. Yes, sir, I said. Thank God I feel pretty stout again now, which is more than many can say. Both battalions of the Rifles had been in that retreat. The 1st Battalion lay at Colchester at this time. Ours, the 2nd, was quartered at Hythe. Colonel Beckwith commanded the 1st and Colonel Wade the 2nd. I remember the 43rd and 52nd Regiments paraded with our battalion on this occasion at Hythe, and both having been with us on the Corunia retreat, cut as poor a figure as we ourselves did. After a while, some of the strongest and smartest of our men were picked out to go on the recruiting service and gather men from the militia regiments to fill up our ranks. I myself started off with Lieutenant Pratt, Sergeant Major Adams and William Brotherwood, the latter of whom was afterwards killed at Vittoria by a cannonball, which at the same moment ended Patrick Mann and Lieutenant Hopwood. <laughs> 
I was a shoemaker in the court and had £20 in my pocket which I had saved up. With this money, I hired a gig and the sergeant major and myself cut a very smart figure. The only difficulty was that neither of us knew how to drive very well. Consequently, we overturned the gig on the first day before we got halfway on our journey and the shafts being broken, we were obliged to leave it behind us in a small village midway between Hythe and Rye and take to our legs as was more soldier-like and seemly. We reached Rye the same night, and I recollect that I succeeded in getting the first recruit there, a strong, able-bodied chimney sweep named John Lee. This fellow, whose appearance I was struck with as he sat in the tap room of the Red Lion on that night, together with a little boy as black and sooty as himself, offered to enlist the moment I entered the room, and I took him at his word, and immediately called for the sergeant major for approval. There's nothing against my being a soldier, said the sweep, but my black face, I'm strong, active and healthy, and able to lick the best man in this room. Hang your black face, said the sergeant major. The rifles can't be too dark. You're a strong rascal, and if you mean it, we'll take you to the doctor tomorrow and make a ginrel of you the next day. So we had the sweep that night into a large tub of water, scoured him outside and filled him with punch inside and made a rifleman of him. The sergeant major, however, on this night, suspected from his countenance what afterwards turned out to be the case, that Lee was rather a slippery fellow and might repent. So after filling him with drink, he said to me, Aris, you have caught this bird and you must keep him fast. You must both sleep tonight and cuff together in the same bed or he will escape us. Which I actually did. And the next morning retraced my steps with him to Hythe to be passed by the doctor of our regiment. After rejoining Sergeant Major Adams at Rye, we started off for Hastings in Sussex, and on our way we heard of the East Kent Militia at Lyd, so we stopped there about an hour to display ourselves before them, and try if we could coax a few of them into the rifles. We strutted up and down before their ranks, arm in arm, and made no small sensation amongst them. When on the recruiting service in those days, Men were accustomed to make as gallant a show as they could, and accordingly we had both smartened ourselves up a trifle. The sergeant major was quite a bow in his way. He had a sling belt to his sword like a field officer, a tremendous green feather in his cap, a flaring sash, his whistle and powder flask displayed, an officer's pelisse over one shoulder, and a double allowance of ribbons in his cap, whilst I myself was also as smart as I dared appear, with my rifle slung at my shoulder. In this guise, we made as much of ourselves as if we had both been generals, and as I said, created quite a sensation. The militiamen cheering us as we passed up and down, till they were called to order by their officers. The permission to volunteer was not then given to the East Kent, although it came out a few days afterwards, and we persuaded many men during the hour we figured before them that the rifles were the only boys fit for them to join. After looking up the East Kent, we reached Hastings that same night, where we found that the volunteering of the Leicester militia, who were quartered there, had commenced, and that 125 men and two officers had given their names to the 7th Fusiliers, and these, Adams and I, determined to make change their minds in our favour if we could. The appearance of our rifle uniform, and a little of Sergeant Adams's blarney, so took the fancies of the volunteers, that we got every one of them to join the Rifle Corps, and both officers into the bargain. We worked hard in this business. 
I may say that for three days and nights we kept up the dance and the drunken riot. Every volunteer got ten guineas bounty, which, except for the two kept back for necessaries, they spent in every sort of excess, till all was gone. Then came the reaction, the drooping spirits, the grief at parting with old comrades, sweethearts, and wives, for the uncertain fate of war. And then came one the jeers of the old soldier, the laughter of Adams and myself and comrades, and our attempts to give a fillip to their spirits as we marched them off from the friends they were never to look upon again, and as we termed it, shoved them on to glory. A glory they were not long in achieving, as out of the hundred and fifty of the Leicestershire, which we enlisted in Hastings, scarce one man, I should say, who served, but could have shown at the years and some token of the fields he had fought in, very many found a grave, and some returned to Hive with the loss of their limbs. I remember the story of many of these men's lives, that of one in particular, named Demon, whom I myself enlisted from the Leicester militia, is not a little curious. Demon was a smart and very active man, and serving as corporal in the light company of the Leicestershire when I persuaded him to join our corps, where he was immediately made a sergeant in the 3rd Battalion, then just forming, and from which he eventually rose to be a commissioned officer in one of our line regiments, but whose number I cannot now remember. The cause which led to Demon's merits being first noticed was not a little curious, being neither more nor less than a race. It happened that at Shoreham Cliff, soon after he joined, a race was got up amongst some Kentish men, who were noted for their swiftness, and one of them, who had beaten his companions, challenged any soldier in the rifles to run against him for £200. The sum was large, and the runner was of so much celebrity, that although we had some active young fellows amongst us, no one seemed inclined to take the chance, either officers or men, till at length Demon stepped forth and said he would run against this Kentish boaster, or any man on the face of the earth, and fight him afterwards into the bargain, if anyone could be found to make up the money. Upon this, an officer subscribed the money, and the race was arranged. The affair made quite a sensation, and the inhabitants of the different villages for miles around flocked to see the sport, besides which the men from different regiments in the neighbourhood, infantry, cavalry and artillery, also were much interested and managed to be present, which caused the scene to be a very gay one. In short, the race commenced, and the odds were much against the soldier at starting, as he was a much less man than the other, and did not at all look like the winner. He however kept well up with his antagonist, and the affair seemed likely to end in a dead heat, which would undoubtedly have been the case, but Demon, when close upon the winning post, gave one tremendous spring forward, and won it by his body's length. This race, in short, led on to notice and promotion. General Mackenzie was in command of the garrison at Hythe. He was present, and was highly delighted at the rifleman beating the bumpkin, and saw that the winner was the very cut of a soldier, and in short that Demon was a very smart fellow so that, eventually, the news of the race reached the 1st Battalion, then fighting in Spain. Sir Andrew Bernard, as far as I recollect from hearsay, at the time, was then in command of the rifles in Spain, and as I now remember the story, either he or some other officer of rank, upon being told of the circumstance, remarked that, as Demon was such a smart runner in England, there was very good ground for a rifleman to use his legs in Spain, he was accordingly ordered out with the next draft to that country, where he so much distinguished himself that he obtained his commission, as already mentioned. 
I could give many more anecdotes connected with the recruiting at this time for the three battalions of rifles, but the above will suffice, and soon after the incident I have just narrated, our companies being full of young and active men, we started off with the expedition, then just formed for Walcheron. I could not help feeling, when we paraded, that I stood and ranked for this first expedition comparatively amongst strangers, since in the company I belonged to, not a single man, except James Brooks, who I have before named, then paraded with me, who had been a fellow comrade in the fields of Portugal and Spain. I felt also the loss of my old captain, Leach, whom I much loved and respected, and who left the 2nd Battalion at the time to be promoted into the 1st. When I heard of this change, I stepped from the ranks and offered to exchange into the 1st, but Lieutenant Hill, who is present, hinted to Captain Hart, my new commanding officer, not to let me go, as if he did, he would perhaps repent it. I will not say here what the lieutenant then said of me, but he persuaded Captain Hart to keep me, as my character had been so good in the former campaign, and accordingly I remained in the 2nd Battalion and started on the Walcheron expedition. From Hythe to Deal was one day's march, and I remember looking along the road at the good appearance the different regiments made as we marched along. It was as fine an expedition as ever I looked at, and the army seemed to stretch, as I regarded them, the whole distance before us to Dover. At Deal, the rifles embarked in the superb, a 74, and a terrible outcry there was amongst the women upon the beach on the embarkation, for the ill consequences of having too many women amongst us had been so apparent in our former campaign and retreat that the allowance of wives was considerably curtailed on this occasion, and the distraction of the poor creatures at parting with their husbands was quite heart-rending some of them clinging to the men so resolutely that the officers were obliged to give orders to have them separated by force. In fact, even after we were in the boats and fairly pushed off, the screaming and howling of their farewells rang in our ears far out at sea. The weather being fair and the fleet having a grand and imposing appearance, many spectators, even from London, came to look at us as we lay in the downs, and we set sail, I think on the third day from our embarkation, in three divisions. A fair wind soon carried us off Flushing, where one part of the expedition disembarked, the other made for South Beverland, among which latter I myself was. The five companies of rifles immediately occupied a very pretty village, with rows of trees on either side its principal streets, where we had plenty of leisure to listen to the cannonading going on amongst the companies we had left at Flushing. The appearance of the country, such as it was, was extremely pleasant, and for a few days the men enjoyed themselves much. But at the expiration of, I think, less time than a week, an awful visitation came suddenly upon us. The first I observed of it was one day as I sat in my billet, when I beheld whole parties of our riflemen in the street, shaking with a sort of ague, to such a degree that they could hardly walk. Strong and fine young men, who had been but a short time in the service, seemed suddenly reduced in strength to infants, unable to stand upright, so great a shaking had seized upon their whole bodies from head to heel. The company I belonged to was quartered in a barn, and I quickly perceived that hardly a man there had stomach for the bread that was served out to him, or even to taste his grog, although each man had an allowance of half a pint of gin per day. In fact, I should say that about three weeks from the day we landed, I and two others were the only individuals who could stand upon our legs. They lay groaning in rows in the barn, 
amongst the heaps of lumpy black bread they were unable to eat. This awful spectacle considerably alarmed the officers, who were also many of them attacked. The naval doctors came on shore to assist the regimental surgeons, who, indeed, had more upon their hands than they could manage. Dr Ridgway of the Rifles and his assistant, having nearly 500 patients prostrate at the same moment. In short, except myself and three or four others, the whole concern was completely flawed. Under these circumstances, which considerably confounded the doctors, orders were issued, since all hopes of getting the men upon their legs seemed gone, to embark them as fast as possible, which was accordingly done with some little difficulty. The poor fellows made every effort to get on board. Those who were a trifle better than others crawled to the boats. Many supported each other, and many were carried helpless as infants. At Flushing, matters were not much better, except that there the soldiers had a smart skirmish with their enemies before the fever, and ague attacked them. On shipboard, the aspect of affairs did not mend, the men beginning to die so fast that they committed ten or twelve to the deep in one day. It was rather extraordinary that myself and Brooks, and a man named Bowley, who had all been there at Corunya, were at this moment unattacked by the disease, and notwithstanding the awful appearance of the pest ship we were in, I myself had little fear of it. I thought myself so hardened that it could not touch me. It happened, however, that I stood sentinel, men being scarce, over the hatchway, and Brooks, who was always a jolly and jeering companion, even in the very jaws of death, came past me and offered me a lump of pudding, it being pudding day on board. At that moment I felt struck with a deadly faintness, shaking all over like an aspen, and my teeth chattering in my head so that I could hardly hold my rifle. Brooks looked at me for a moment with the pudding in his hand, which he saw I could not take. Hello, he said. Why, Harris, old boy, you're not going to begin, are you? I felt unable to answer him, but only muttered out as I trembled. For God's sake, get me relieved, Brooks. Hello, said Brooks. It's all up with Harris. You catched hold of the last old chap. In fact, I was soon sprawling upon the forecastle, amongst many others, in a miserable state, our knapsacks and our greatcoats over us. In this state, the doctors, during our short voyage, were fully employed. Pails of infusion of bark were carried amongst us and given to the men in horn tumblers, and thus we arrived at Dover. As I lay on the deck, I looked up at that splendid castle in the distance. It was identified with old England, and many a languid eye was cheered by its sight. Men naturally loved to die upon their native land, and I felt I could now do so countenantly. Nay, I have that frowning English fortress in my eye. At this moment, as I then beheld it, the Warwickshire militia were at this time quartered at Dover. They came to assist in disembarking us and were obliged to lift many of us out the boats like sacks of flour. If any of those militiamen remain alive, they will not easily forget that piece of duty, for I never beheld men more moved than they were at our helpless state. Many died at Dover and numbers in Deal, whilst those who had somewhat rallied on getting from the land of pestilence were paraded in order to get them onto their old quarters at Hythe. I remember that the 43rd and 52nd regiments, all that were able, marched with us this day to Hythe, but I'm afraid we did not, any of us, cut much of a figure on the road. In fact, such was the shaking fever we felt, we were left pretty much to our own discretion to get to our journey's end in the best manner we could. Many, indeed, would never have got into barracks without assistance. In short, 
When I sat down, exhausted by the roadside several times during the march, and looked at the mem, I thought it bore in some degree a similitude to the Corunia retreat, so awfully had disease enfeebled them. The hospital, being at Hive, being filled with the sick, the barracks became a hospital, and as deaths ensued and thinner wards, the men were continually removed, making a progress from barrack to hospital and from hospital to the grave. I had been gradually removed as the men died, until I was driven up into a corner of the ward where I lay, and had plenty of leisure to observe my comrades in misfortune and witness their end. Some I beheld die quietly, and others were seized in various ways. Many got out of bed in a shivering delirium and died upon the floor in the night time. Having been a shoemaker in the rifles, I had saved during my service near £200, which I had in the bank at Hythe at this time, so that I was enabled to procure extra wine and other nourishing things, and often gave my companions in misfortune a treat also. And this, I think, enabled my iron constitution to keep death so long at bay. I saw one or two of my old peninsula comrades, whom I had often seen fighting bravely in the field, die in this hospital in a miserable condition, their bodies being swollen up like barrels. Everything was done for us that skill could devise, and nothing could exceed the kindness and attention of Dr. Ridgway towards us. Hot baths were brought into the hospital, and many a man died whilst in the bath. I remember hearing, as I lay sick, that the firing over the graves of our comrades was dispensed with. The men died so fast, and when I got out and went to the churchyard to look upon their graves, I saw them lying in two lines there, as they in life had been enranked, so they lay also in similar order in death. The medical men made every effort to trace the immediate cause of this mortality amongst us and almost all the men were examined after death, but it was of no avail, as nothing could arrest the progress of the malady after it had reached a certain height. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The doctor, I heard, generally attributed the deaths, in most cases, to enlargement of the spleen, as almost all was swollen and diseased in that part. I myself was dreadfully enlarged in the side, and for many years afterwards carried an extra paunch. As soon as the prospect began to brighten, and the men to recover a little, we managed to muster outside the hospital, some three hundred of us parading there morning and evening for the benefit of fresh air, and medicine was served out to us as we stood and ranked, the hospital orderlies passing along the files and giving each man his dose from large jugs from which they carried. As we got better, 
an order arrived to furnish two companies of the 2nd Battalion and two companies of the 3rd Battalion of Rifles for Spain, as they were much wanted there. Accordingly, an inspection took place and 200 men were picked out, all of whom were most anxious to go. I myself was rejected at that time as unfit, which I much regretted. However, on making application after a few days, I was accepted, principally on the recommendation of Lieutenant Cochrane, who much wished for me, and I, in consequence, once more started for foreign service. From Hythe to Portsmouth, where we were to embark, was eight days' march, but the very first day found out some of the Walcheren lads. I myself was assisted that night to my billet, the ague having again seized me, and on the third day, wagons were put in requisition to get us along the road. As we proceeded, some of those men who had relapsed died by the way, and were buried in different places we passed through. At Chichester, I recollect, a man was taken out of the wagon in which I myself lay, who had died beside me, and at that place he was buried. At Portsmouth, I remained one night, billeted with my fellow travellers at the Dolphin. Here, I was visited by an uncle who resided in the town, and who was much shocked at seeing me so much reduced, concluding it was impossible I could serve many days. Such was the sad state we were again reduced to. The next morning, spring wagons were procured for us, and we were sent back to Hilsey Barracks for the benefit of medical advice, and I took a farewell of my uncle, expecting never to see him again. Such, however, was not to be the case, as, out of the 39 riflemen who went into Hilsey Hospital, I alone survived. It may seem to my readers extraordinary that I should twice be the survivor of so many of my comrades. I can only, therefore, refer them to the medical men who attended us, if they yet live, Dr Ridgway of the Rifles and Dr Fraser, who at that time was the surgeon at Hilsey. I must not forget to mention an act of great kindness and humanity which was performed towards the soldiery whilst we lay sick at Hilsey Hospital. Lady Grey, who I believe was the wife of the Commissioner of Portsmouth Dockyard at the time, was so much struck with the state of the sufferers that she sent one morning two carts loaded with warm clothing for them, giving to each man of whatsoever regiment who had been at Walcheren two pairs of flannel drawers and two flannel waistcoats. This circumstance was greatly appreciated by the men, and many, like myself, have never forgotten it. After this, being the only rifleman left at Hilsey, Lieutenant Bardell made application to the General for leave for me to go into Dorsetshire to see my friends, which was granted. But the doctor shook his head, doubting I should ever be able to endure the journey. In about a week, however, I considered myself fit to undertake it, and accordingly, a non-commissioned officer of one of the line regiments put me into Salisbury coach. A lady and gentleman were my fellow passengers inside, and we started about four o'clock. They seemed not much to relish the look of a sick soldier in such close quarters, and indeed, we had hardly cleared the town of Gosport before I gave them a dreadful fright. In short, I was attacked all at once with one of my periodical ague fits, and shook to so desperate a degree that they were both horror-struck and almost inclined to keep me company in trembling. The lady thought that both herself and husband were lost, and would certainly catch the complaint, expressing herself as most unhappy in having begun her journey on that day. These fits generally lasted an hour and a quarter, 
and then came on a burning fever, during which I called for water at every place where the coach stopped. In fact, coachman, guard and passengers, outside and in, by no means liked it, and expected every minute that I should die in the coach. Here's a nice go, said the coachman, as he stopped at the place called Whitchurch. Catch me ever taking up a sick soldier again if I can help it. This here poor devil's going to make a die of it in my coach. It seemed, indeed, as if I had personally offended the burly coachman, for he made an oration at every place he stopped at, and sent all the helpers and idlers to look at me as I sat in his coach, till at last I was obliged to beg of him not to do so. I had two attacks of this sort during the night, and was so bad that I myself thought with the coachman that I should never get out of the vehicle alive. Never, I should think, had passengers so unpleasant a journey as the lady and gentleman I travelled with. At length, early in the morning, the coach stopped at a village one mile from my father's residence, which was on the estate of the present Marquis of Anglesey. I had left my father's cottage quite a boy, and although I knew the landlord of the little inn where the coach stopped, and several other persons I saw there, none recognised me, so I made myself known as well as I could, for I was terribly exhausted, and the landlord immediately got four men to carry me home. My father was much moved at beholding me return in so miserable a plight, as were also my stepmother and my brother. I remained with them eight months, six of which I lay in a hopeless state in bed, certificates being sent every month to Hythe, stating my inability to move, and during which time, Captain Hart sent four letters to the commanding officer, desiring I might be drafted out, if possible, to Spain. As being a handicraft, I was much wanted there. The medical men round the neighbourhood hearing of my state. Many of them came to see me, in order to observe the nature of a complaint that had proved so fatal to our soldiers. At the end of the eight months, being once more somewhat recovered and able to crawl about, without the aid of a stick a few yards from my cottage door, as my mother-in-law had once or twice expressed herself burthened by this long illness, I resolved to attempt to return to my regiment. I was therefore transported in a cart to the King's Arms Inn at Dorchester, my body being swollen up as hard as a barrel, and my limbs covered with ulcers. Here the surgeons of the 9th and 11th Dragoons made an examination of me and ordered me into Dorchester Hospital, where I remained seven weeks, and here my case completely puzzled the faculty. At length, Dr. Burroughs, on making his rounds, caught sight of me as I sat in my bed, dressed in my green uniform. Hello, rifleman, he said. How came you to be here? Being told, he looked very sharply at me and seemed to consider. Walteran, he inquired. Eh? Yes, sir, I said, and it has not done with me yet. Strip, my man, he said. Lie on your back. What have you done for him? He asked sharply of the doctor. The doctor told him. Then try him with mercury, sir, he said, both externally and internally. After saying which in a rapid manner, he turned as quickly and proceeded in his rounds amongst the rest of the patients. I was now salivated most desperately, after which I got a little better and resolved, at all hazards, to try and rejoin my regiment for I was utterly tired of the hospital life I had altogether so long led. For heaven's sake, I said, let me go and die with my own regiment. With some little difficulty, I got leave to go, and once again started 
at my own expense for Hyde in Kent by the coach. Before doing so, however, to my surprise, the medical man who had attended me under my father's roof brought me in his bill, which was a pretty good one, amounting to £60. I thought this was pretty well for a poor soldier to be charged. Having still, however, enough left of my savings, I paid it, but I kept the bill and afterwards showed it to Dr. Scott of the Rifles, who remarks, It could not have been higher, Harris, if you had been a man possessing a thousand a year. When I made my appearance in the barrack square at Hythe, I was like one risen from the dead, for I had been so long missing from amongst the few I knew there that I almost was forgotten. A hardy Scot named Macpherson was one of the first who recognised me. The day after my arrival, I was once more in hospital, and here I remained under Dr. Scott for 28 weeks. Such was the water and fever, and to this day I sometimes feel the remains of it in the damp weather. From Hive I was sent, amongst some other invalids, to Chelsea. Sixty of us marched together on this occasion. Many had lost their limbs, which, from wounds as well as disease, had been amputated. And altogether, we did not make a very formidable appearance, being frequently obliged to be halted in the road to repair our strength, when the whole turnout would be seen sitting or sprawling at full length by the wayside. This march took us ten days to accomplish, and when we halted at Pimlico, we were pretty well done up. We were billeted in the different public houses in Chelsea. With others, I lodged at the Three Crowns, close beside the Bun House. I remember we paraded in the five fields, then an open space, but now covered with elegant mansions, and became a part of London. 3,000 invalids mustered here every morning, a motley group, presenting a true picture of the toils of war. There were the lame, the halt and the blind, the sick and the sorry, all in a lump. With those who had lost their limbs, there was not much trouble, as they became pensioners, but others were, some of them, closely examined from day to day as to their eligibility for service. Amongst others, I was examined by Dr. Leppon. What age are you, rifleman? he said. Thirty-two, sir, I replied. What trade have you been of? he inquired. A shoemaker, I replied. Where have you been? he said. In Denmark, Spain, Portugal and Walteren, I said. In which latter place I met the worst enemy of all. Never mind that, he said. You'll do yet. And we will send you to a veteran battalion. Accordingly, I was appointed to the 8th Veteran Battalion, with others, and sent to Fort Cumberland. Here, I joined Captain Cresswell's company, an officer who had lost one eye whilst in the 36th Regiment in Spain. I was again the only green jacket of the lot, and the officers assembled round me during the first muster and asked me numerous questions about my service amongst the rifles, for we had a great reputation in the army at this time. Major Caldwell commanded the battalion. He had been in the 5th and received a grievous wound in the head. He was a kind and soldier-like man, but if you put him out of temper, you would soon find out that he felt with his wound. Captain Picard was there too, and Captain Flaherty, and Lieutenant Moorhead. All of them were more or less shattered, whilst their men, although most of them were young, were very good specimens of war's stern service. One, perhaps had a tale to tell of Salamanca, where he lost an eye. Another spoke of the breach at Badajoz, 
where he got six balls at once in his body. Many paraded with sticks in their hands, and altogether it was something of a different sort of force to the active chaps I had been in the habit of serving amongst. In fact, I much regretted my green jacket and grieved at being obliged to part with it for the red coat of the veterans. I remained in the veterans only four months, as, at the expiration of that time, Napoleon was sent to Elba. We were then marched to Chelsea to be disbanded, where we met thousands of soldiers lining the streets and lounging about before the different public houses, with every description of wound and casualty incident to modern warfare. There hobbled the maimed light infantrymen, the heavy dragoon, the hussar, artillerymen, the fusilier, and specimens from every regiment in the service. The Irishman, shouting and brandishing his crutch, the English soldier, reeling with drink, and the Scot, with grave and melancholy visage, sitting on the steps of the public house amongst the crowd, listening to the skirl of his comrades' pipes, and thinking of the blue hills of his native land. Such were Chelsea and Pimlico in 1814. In about a week's time, I was discharged, and received a pension of sixpence per day, and, for the first time since I had been a shepherd lad on Blandford Downs, I saw myself in plain clothes, and with liberty to go and come where I liked. Before, however, my pension became due, I was again called upon to attend, together with others, in consequence of the escape of Bonaparte from Alba, but I was then in so miserable a plight with the remains of the fever and ague, which still attacked me every other day, that I did not answer the call, whereby I lost my pension, and here I may perhaps as well mention a slight anecdote of the great duke. The duke, I was told, observed in Spain that several men who had come out from England after Walcheren were unable to keep up on the march, and afterwards completely failed. He inquired the reason of this, and was told they were men who had been on the Walcheren expedition. Then never, said the duke, let another man be sent here who has been on Walcheren. At Fort Cumberland, I remember another curious circumstance which may, perhaps, in these times, be thought worthy of narration. Many of the French prisoners had volunteered into the English service and were formed into four companies, called the Independent Companies. These men were smart-looking fellows and wore a green uniform, something like the rifles. Whilst I was with the veterans, one of these men deserted and was retaken at Portsmouth and tried by court-martial at Fort Cumberland. Besides his crime of desertion, he had aggravated it by gross insubordination, and he was accordingly sentenced to be flogged. We all, French and English, paraded to see the sentence carried into effect, and, in case of anything happening, and our opposite neighbours, the Green Jackets, showing fight, the veterans were all ordered to load with ball. When the culprit heard the sentence read out to him, he was a good deal annoyed and begged that he might be shot as would have happened to him in his own country. Such, however, it was explained to him, could not be allowed, and he was accordingly punished. The Duke of York, who was then commander-in-chief, had thought it necessary to make this example, although all of us would have been glad to see him forgiven. Shortly after this, on Napoleon's being sent to Alba, these men were all liberated and sent home to their own country, with four pounds given to each man and gloriously drunk they all were at Portsmouth the night they embarked. The veterans were very intimate and friendly with these Frenchmen, as they were quartered together, and we were all sorry to hear, 
whether true or false I cannot say, that on their return, their uniforms betraying their having served us, they were grossly maltreated by their fellow countrymen. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.